book of Acts. We're now on to chapter 6. And 6 and 7 are the stoning of Stephen. There's a couple of things about Stephen's speech that I want to mention. But most of it is a recitation of Israelite history. And since pretty much everybody in here has been through Israelite history lots and lots of times, I'm going to sort of skim over that and just hit a couple of points that I want to emphasize. I'm in chapter 6 now. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I think, again, everybody probably knows this. Hellenistic Jews are Jews that basically are Greekified. And the Hellenist party goes all the way back to Alexander the Great. When Alexander conquered Israel, a lot of Jews became enamored of Greek culture and so forth, and they tried to be Greeks as much as they could. In fact, as you probably know, there was a brisk business in circumcision reversal because the Greeks in the gymnasiums would exercise in the nude, and you could immediately tell the difference then between a Greek and a Hebrew, and so they had a circumcision reversal process that they would do so that they would blend in with the Greeks. And, of course, the Greeks were the ones that were against the Maccabees, about 200 B.C. So that party continues to exist at this time, and obviously there's a little tension going on between those who are Hebrews, which I am going to assume means Torah followers, those who, for example, would have been on the Maccabees side as opposed to on the Hellenistic side or on the side of Antiochus Epiphanes. But they're all, at this point, believers in Yeshua. So one of the things that, of course, happens is the gospel, as it gets spread, will go through the Mediterranean basin because everybody in the Mediterranean basin speaks Greek. So Gentiles who speak Greek are going to be brought into belief in Yeshua. But these Hellenists are not Gentiles who speak Greek. They are Jews who are Greekified. The disciples are the ones that were with Yeshua. And then you have within people who are converted. In other words, people who have come to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, have been baptized and have gotten the Holy Spirit. Those people fall into two groups, Hellenists and Hebrews. And the disciples are over both of them, even though the disciples themselves are ethnically Hebrews. So what we have is, you remember that they set things up so that all stuff was held in common. So people would come in and get what they needed. And the Hellenistic faction was complaining that their widows were getting short shrift in comparison with the widows in the Hebrew faction. So that's sort of the setup here. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Now notice, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, which indicates to me that there's more than twelve. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, 
pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. These are believers, these are guys that have the Holy Spirit, may have been in the upper room at Pentecost for all we know, or they may have been picked up later, because by this time, lots of people have come to Yeshua. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. This is the origin of what we call deacons. And again, the idea there is that they are young, I would imagine, and they have a servant's heart, and the disciples have proselytizing to do, and they need somebody they can trust to take care of distributing food and goods and so forth. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you've got several sects, if you will, in Jerusalem. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got priests, who I'm assuming can be members of either sect, but my understanding is the Sadducees were the ones that were most active in the administration of the temple don't necessarily know whether they were priests or not. But I'm sort of assuming that priests would probably have been more sympathetic to the Sadducees than to the Pharisees, but that's a guess on my part. Sadducees are simply a political party that have a doctrine or a belief. So it's like in this building we got Messianics, we got Baptists, and we got Reformed Baptists. If you were to strip us all naked, and line us up against the wall, you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. The idea is there isn't any difference among us other than what we believe. And it's the same thing then with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and so forth. The priests have an office that they have gotten hereditarily, which is to say they are descendants of Aaron, who is a Levite. So in order to be a priest, you have to be a physical descendant of Aaron. But once you are a physical descendant of Aaron, you can believe like a Sadducee believes, and you can believe like a Pharisee believes. The fact that your descent is required for you to be a priest doesn't say anything about what your theology is. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Silesia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, I don't know who the synagogue of the freedmen is. I'm again going to make an assumption. Rome is a slave-based society. As sort of a side note, there are those who believe that one of the reasons Paul write so much about sex is because the culture was if you were a slave you really had no control over the use of your body so if household had a number of slaves it was fairly routine for those slaves to be used sexually by their masters 
and the thing that Paul is really upset about is the lack of freedom and coercion with respect to sexuality and slaves. So, the idea that you might have a synagogue of freedmen, which is slaves who have purchased their freedom, that makes sense to me, given, as I say, that that part of the world in those days was slave-based. And I am assuming, this is an assumption again on my part, that these are not freed Hebrew slaves, because the Torah has fairly specific instructions on how you will treat a Hebrew slave and under what circumstances you will release such a slave. And so the idea of somebody having the status of a freedman in Torah lexicon doesn't make any sense. In other words, in the Torah, slave is not something you are. Slave is something you do. And you can be a slave for a period of time, not to exceed seven years, unless you decide to stay with the family. And typically, slaves became slaves in the Hebrew economy because they couldn't support themselves. They got themselves into debt or they got themselves into crime and were sentenced to a period of slavery and then sold to a Hebrew family. And at the end of that six years, in the year of release, they had to be released, they had to be set up and so forth. So in the Hebrew economy, you don't have slaves for a long time. That's a Gentile thing. So anyway, you've got freedmen, you've got Cyrenians, Alexandrians, North Africa, Silesians, which is the bottom of Turkey, and Asia, which is the rest of Turkey. So these are all what I would call ethnic synagogues of imagining either Jews or proselytes who have come to Jerusalem from a foreign country. And I, and I would imagine that they probably have banded together because I need to go somewhere where they speak my language. So, for example, here on J Road, you've got a Korean church. Their sign is in Korean, and I'm pretty sure most of the congregation is Korean. So the idea of foreigners who move to another country and then band together and form their own church is a very common thing. And that's sort of what I'm assuming is going on here. What I don't know, no idea, is why they are chapped at Stephen. So maybe verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, Stephen, was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that the Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Reminds me of an old cartoon. You all know Joan of Arc, right? Joan of Arc is being burned at the stake, and you've got all of these ecclesiastical people standing around. And as Joan is expiring, the heavens opened up, and angels come down with trumpets, and they receive her spirit. And one, one of the priests said to the other, Oh, man, did we screw this up? I'm sort of seeing 
that with Steve in here. This passage always reminds me of that cartoon. So anyway, if you go back to the council's prosecution of the disciples, you go back to the crucifixion of Yeshua. It's all political. They are worried that these people, first Yeshua and his disciples, and then those who follow the way, are going to rise up and rebel and cause Rome to come in and put down the rebellion. That's the thing that they're worried about. The previous arrest of Peter and John, Peter and John getting beaten, all that kind of stuff, it's all political. Now, it doesn't help that these guys are of a upstart religious sect. I mean, it makes the politics easier, but the real underlying thing there is political. I have no idea what's going on with these synagogues of foreigners who are going to such extents to frame Stephen. I, I just don't, don't understand that one. Unless it is truly a religious dispute, because Jews are just like Christians in that sense, if you get somebody that you think is a heretic, it can get violent. And it may be as simple as if you are a Baptist and walk into a Catholic church and say, you're all a bunch of idolaters. Look at that idol of Mary and look at that idol. You know, If you were to walk into a Catholic church with that kind of an attitude, they might get grumpy with you. And there are times and places where you might have been burned at the stake for doing that. So it may be that kind of a dispute where this Stephen wanders in and, and says, you all are a bunch of somethings because you don't recognize Yeshua. That may be what's going on, but I don't know that. It says that they brought false witnesses and they said that these guys are teaching against Moses and they're teaching against the law and they're saying this guy Yeshua is going to destroy this whole place and is going to change the Torah. The argument that they're bringing is religious. And the council, they have their own police force. In fact, what you'll find is Paul, or Saul, as he's known at that time, has got a warrant from this group to go out and arrest people and throw them in jail for following the way. So it's that kind of a thing. So, chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? So, the high priest is a member of that council. You would have had prominent people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, ruling, but it's all done under the auspices of the temple. In other words, this is not Roman justice, this is Jewish justice. But as I say, in the case of the persecution of Yeshua and the persecution of Peter and John, the underlying motive was fear of the Romans. Now, it didn't hurt anything that these guys were also religious wackos, and we can bring them in and accuse them of religious wackoism and so forth, but the underlying motive was fear of the Romans. Here, I don't know what the motive is other than, as I say, running into a Catholic church as a Baptist and accusing them all of idolatry. I mean, that might get you stoned. So, chapter 7 again. The high priest said, are these things so? All right, now, here we're going to have a uh, recitation of Hebrew history. And as I say, you all have been through 
the Torah often enough that you probably do this defense by memory by yourselves. So I'm not going to read it all, starting with Abraham and going through the patriarchs and then going to Egypt and Moses and just a thumbnail sketch of the history of Israel. And then if you get down to chapter 7 and verse 14, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Well, that's not right. There's 70. 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. That's all incorrect. None of that's correct. If you go back to the Torah, which you've all been through dozens of times, how many people went down to Egypt? Seventy. And where is the burial place that Abraham purchased? It's Hebron. The cave of Machpelah at Hebron. So both of those are not correct. And I've mentioned this now three times, and I will mention it very quickly. There's a guy on Aish that used to be a Baptist preacher. And he started reading the Torah instead of just the New Testament and discovered this discrepancy. And that, for him, threw the New Testament into serious question. And he went sort of through Messianic and all the way into Rabbinic Judaism just like he'd been greased. And he's now an Orthodox Jew. And there are a number of these things in the New Testament. This is not the only one. And I told you I would point them out as we got to them. So there's this one. And this is the one that is cited in this guy's testimony. Here you have Stephen. And none of the disciples were educated men, with the possible exception of John, who may have been a priest. But most of them were fishermen and just working guys. And they would have grown up and gone to Shabbat school, just like Christian kids go to Sunday school. So they would have learned all of this growing up. And somebody were to ask you the gospel, you could give a fairly good recitation of the gospel just because you've been a Christian all your life. And it wouldn't be at all unusual if you were on trial for your life for you to get some of the the detail. I mean, you probably wouldn't necessarily remember that Yeshua went down to Egypt for a period of time. I mean, you might, but you might not. So there's all sorts of details that you might get tied up. And certainly, I believe Joseph is buried in Shechem, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried in Hebron. So for you to go through that list and say, buried in Shechem, would be an easy slip to make. And, you know, 70, 75, what's five people, you know? So, for you to go through this two-chapter recitation of the history of Israel and make a couple of slips as you went through it would not be anything that anybody would find remarkable. And the way I view this is whoever put the New Testament together knew the actual history. And so if I were writing this down, I'd say, oh, Stephen, come on, it's 70, and come on, it's Hebron, and I would just write what it actually was. 
the fact that that didn't get cleaned up tells me that this is an accurate recording of what was actually said. And Luke is a Gentile anyway. Yeah, he's not a Jew. Luke is the physician, remember? So the fact that you're going to find these flubs in the New Testament, in cases like this where, as I say, it's a recording of testimony by somebody who's about to get stoned, and he's doing this from memory, and he is not necessarily an educated man. His job is not to be a rabbi or a priest. He's just a guy. And so for him to misspeak, and then for that misspeaking to be recorded accurately speaks to me of the accuracy of the testimony in the book. So now I'm going to skip on down. And what's happening is he's giving the history of Israel. But what he's going to do is he's going to come to a conclusion which is going to be accusatory of them. So we go through a bunch of history. Let's pick it up. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This is, remember, the two Hebrews that are fighting, and Moses tries to break it up before he flees to Midian. So, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. So combination of Exodus and Deuteronomy in this little short speech. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. Now, this is the unfortunate instance of the golden calf. Now, notice he's got things just sort of all higgledy-piggledy jumbled up. In the Torah, it's all laid out over several books. And what Stephen is doing is sort of hitting the good parts version and not necessarily in order. Pick it up at 39 again. That's all one sentence. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. So, what he has just described is not the sequence of events that happened in the wilderness. They made the golden calf in the wilderness because they thought Moses had disappeared on them. He'd been gone for 40 days. God giving them over doesn't occur for hundreds of years later. And the quote is from the book of Amos, verse 42. So, the book of Amos is written about the exile of the northern kingdom. That's what I say. It would sort of be like you've gone to Sunday school all your life and somebody's asking you to describe the Bible to them and you're pumping out sound bites here. That's what Stephen is doing. So back again to 42 now. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, Amos. 
Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he's talking about the house of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and he's quoting from the book of Amos, who is explaining to Israel why they're going into exile. But he sort of runs it over the sin of the golden calf, which was hundreds of years earlier. Verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And that's a quote from the Psalms. So this is all by way of history, right? So now Stephen turns and looks at him and says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So from 51 through 53 is Stephen looking them right between the eyes and saying, you guys are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts, just like your fathers. You stoned the prophets. You stoned John the Baptist, who was the one that came to make the way, and you killed the righteous one. That just sort of naturally irritates them. And, and they're going to go ahead and stone him now. And sort of as an editorial aside, you remember I said I didn't know exactly what was going on with the synagogue of the freemen and the Cyrenes and so forth. Stephen's got a mouth on him. Yeah, he and Paul would have been great friends if they hadn't been on opposite sides. And I can very well see Stephen waltzing into one of these synagogues and calling them all a bunch of idolaters. And I can just see how that would irritate those folks too. And so I'm not sure that Stephen wasn't a burr under lots of people's saddles, which is what finally got him stoned. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he had said this, he fell asleep. <laughs> 